Let's open our Bibles tonight to Ezekiel chapter 25. Our goal tonight is 25 through 29. And um, I'm going to put up on the screen the overview of our study to give you a visual of what's happening in these chapters. So the, the guys are going to put up a picture of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's conquest in 25. We're going to see the um, fall of Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia. And this, these chapters here, this brings us to a whole new section, chapter 25 to 32, which deals with the prophecies concerning the nations around Israel. All of these nations, as far as we are concerned today, have long since disappeared from the face of the earth, and the prophecies about them have been literally and completely fulfilled. Now, up to this point, Ezekiel has been giving out prophecies concerning Jerusalem and the land of Israel because the final deportation of the children of Israel has not yet arrived. Israel fell in three different attacks. Daniel went along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the first siege. Then they had the second siege where they took a lot of the temple treasures. But up till this time, um, Jerusalem has not yet been totally destroyed. What What has happened when we get to chapter 25 is now Nebuchadnezzar has come. He has taken the city of Jerusalem and he has destroyed the temple. So now when it says, when I say the final deportation of the children of Israel has not yet arrived, uh, this coming now, the, the attention is going to turn because Jerusalem here at this point has fallen. To the very last, the people held on to this faint hope at the urging and the encouragement of false prophets that God would not destroy Jerusalem and the land of Israel would remain. After all, wasn't it God's method of communication to the world? And when the destruction of Jerusalem occurred, the people, they were startled, they were dumbfounded, because it actually had happened. The unthinkable had happened. Jerusalem was gone. The temple was gone. Ezekiel, along with Jeremiah, had proved accurate in their prophecies, and from here on, he will not be giving any prophecies concerning the destruction of Jerusalem because he's not writing history, he's writing prophecy. So he now turns to the surrounding nations and what will be their fate. So this section, um, from 25 to 32, I would have liked to have gone through all of them because it, it would have a complete... Um, it would have a complete judgment of all of these, but we're only going to get to 29, hopefully tonight, because I do want to get at least to one chapter with, um, with Egypt. So the prophecies are going to be concerning Ammon, Moab, Edom, um, the Philistines, and then uh, Tyre and Sidon, and finally Egypt itself. And with that much, um, let's dive right in. I'm just going to read chapter 27, uh, chapter 26 uh, we did a couple weeks ago, and 28 we did this last Sunday, so some of this will be familiar. So let's go back to chapter 25, Ezekiel, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them, and say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, Aha, against my sanctuary, when it was profaned, and against the land of Israel, when it was desolate, and against the house of Judah, when they went into captivity. What this reminds me of is, um, oh, cities like Ramallah in Israel today that are um, Palestinian towns. And you would hear of um, a car bombing or somebody getting um, killed in Jerusalem. What they would 
go out and do is exactly what we just read here. They would go out and they would actually applaud it um, because of what had happened to um, people in Jerusalem. And because of this, the Lord says in verse 4, Indeed, therefore, I'm going to deliver you as a possession to the men of the east. They shall set their encampments among you and make their dwellings among you. They shall eat your uh, fruit and they will drink your milk. And I will make Rabbah a stable for camels and Ammon a resting place for flocks. And then you will know that I am the Lord. I know I've said this over and over and over again, but 54 times in the book of Ezekiel, the main verse is, then they will know that I am the Lord. And this is building up to chapter 38, which I think 36, 37, and 38, I like to say we're living between the pages of chapter 37, Israel's back in the land, but 38 hasn't happened. But we're watching it even unfold as uh, we're, we're here this evening. Um, for thus says Lord God, because you clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced in heart with all your disdain for the land of Israel. Um, like I just mentioned about uh, the people in Ramallah actually rejoicing when something bad happens in Israel today. Indeed, therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as a plunder to the nations. I will cut you off from the peoples. I will cause you to perish from the countries. I will destroy you. And again, you will know that I am the Lord. So Ammon, they would be referred to as the Ammonites. Every one of uh, these cities and countries are going to be taken uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. And so from 1 to 7, that's dealing with Ammon. In verses 8 through 11, we're dealing with Moab. Um, Again, Ruth uh, was a Moabite. She's the one who married Boaz. And their great-grandson was King David. And uh, we pick up in verse 8, thus says the Lord God, because Moab... And Seir say, look, the house of Judah is like all the nations. Therefore, behold, I will clear the territories of Moab, the cities and of the cities of the frontier and the glory of the country of Bet Shemath and Baal Meon and Ker Jerob. And to the men of the east, I will give it as a possession together with the Ammonites that the Ammonites may not be remembered among the nations. Now, there are no more Ammonites, there are no more Moabites, there are no more Edomites, there are no more Philistines, but there are Israelis. And um, I, was, I had a chance to witness to a, a guy just yesterday. What was it? Yeah, it was yesterday. It was one of those divine appointment type things, and, and uh, we talked a little bit about prophecy and I, I gave him my wisdom for today. And I said, the biggest prophecy that's been fulfilled in our lifetime is Israel. Because, and I kind of hit on these other nations, uh, you don't find a Philistine, you don't find a Jebusite, you don't find an Ammonite, you don't find any of these people. But, you know, I mentioned that I'd led trips to Israel and had gone there many, many times. And um, he commented that he had a friend was, who was, um, was Jewish. And um, I said, is, is he Orthodox or secular? And he says, I don't know. <laughs> and um, I said, do you want to impress him next time you see him? And he says, what do you got in mind? And I said, well, if it's morning, just say Bokertov to him. And I, I said, if that's hard for you to remember, just say broke your toe. And Bokertov, that means good morning. And uh, if you want to say thank you, just say toda. And if you want to say thank you very much, say toda raba. And um, he said, I'm going to try to remember that. Um, anyway, all that to point out that the nation of Israel is a miracle. No other country in the world has been dispersed 
for one or two generations without being assimilated into that new culture and much less return to their native land and exist to this day. For Israel, it's been almost 2,000 years. But the Lord said in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11, I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to bring them back a second time. Now, all of what Ezekiel is about here is that they're going into captivity now, and they're going to be there for 70 years, but he's going to bring them back. When we get to Egypt, he's going to say, I'm going to take you into captivity for 40 years, and then I'm going to bring you back. And um, that's exactly what happened. But I'm getting ahead of myself there with um, Egypt just a little bit. Let's go to Edom in verse 14. Thus says the Lord God, because of what Edom did against the house of Judah, by taking advantage and has greatly offended by avenging itself on them, therefore thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom, and um, I will cut off man and beast from it, make it desolate from Timon and Dedan, shall fall by the sword. I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel, that they may do in Edom according to my anger, according to my fury, and they shall know my vengeance, says the Lord God. So if again, if you're looking at the map up on the screen, we have the general location of these Ammon and Moab and Edom, and we find out uh, Ammon's the farthest one in the north. Moab, again, where Ruth was from, a little bit north of, of Edom. The last couple of verses deals with Philistia. Today it is known as the Gaza Strip, and that's the last couple of verses of um, chapter 25. Thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines dealt vengefully and took vengeance with a spiteful heart to destroy because of the old hatred. Now you have to flash back to the time of Samuel and Saul and Goliath and the war with with the Philistines. Even at one time, the Philistines were victorious and they captured the Ark of the Covenant. And David's whole life from the time he was a young man taking on Goliath um, his whole life was committed to um, taking out the Philistines. So by the time Solomon finally came around, there was all this peace. But, um, I mean, David was a whole package. I like to say he was a musician's musician. When they were looking for somebody to comfort Saul when he was troubled, they said, who's the best? And I said, David. When it came to being a warrior, they wrote songs about him. Well, Saul's slain his thousands, but David's his tens of thousands. And then, as far as uh, being a man after God's own heart, well, that's what he's really known for. So he's, he had the whole package. His heart, he wrote half, almost ex- exactly half of the Psalms. What we feel about the Lord, how we think about him, David's gift was being able not only to sing about it, the Psalms are songs, uh, he, he, he wrote them. Yes, he had his faults. He, um, he had the affair with, with Bathsheba. He was guilty of murder by killing Uriah the Hittite. And yet, being human and um, failing in those areas to his credit, he was not an excuse maker like Saul. When Saul was confronted with his sin, all he had was excuses for it. When David was confronted with his, he was quick to repent. And he realized he didn't sin against Uriah or Bathsheba. As he prayed, he says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. And um, it should have been an eye for an eye. And uh, the Lord says uh, through the prophet, he said to David, you shall not. You shall not die. Um, all that 
to touch in with these verses 15 through 17. The Philistines no longer exist. And as long as I'm on a subject here, let me get a little sidetracked. Um, when the Romans came about to uh, have a personal insult to the Jewish people, they renamed it over time Palestine. And um, I know I've said this many times, but there's always people hearing it for the first time, so let me say it again. We read these countries, Edomites, Moabites, Ammonites, Philistines, so on and so forth. But there's no such thing as a Palestinian. They, they never existed. That whole territory, they say, is a land of Palestine. Well, there's, there's never um, uh, been, there's, there's uh, people in Jordan today that are Arabs. There's people in Syria that are Arabs. There are people in Egypt, we're going to touch on, they're Arabs. But there are no um, Palestinians. That was Yasser Arafat. He pulled the name out of thin air. And there's never been a place called Palestine. All right, let's go ahead. Chapter 26 is um, uh, what we did a couple Sundays ago. It really is divided into two sections. The first section uh, goes up to verse 11, so let's read that. Now we're dealing with Tyre. If you look on the map, you'll see that Tyre and Sidon Sidon is the farthest north up on the map, and below it is Tyre. And um, we're going to put up on the screen at this time what Tyre looked at, looked like uh, during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. So let's have that one up there now. Nope, the other one, guys. Nope, the other one. You right, you had it right the first time. Okay, my mistake. I'll uh, explain this in just a second. It came to pass in the 11th year and the first day of the month that the word of the Lord came to me and said, Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, aha, she is broken who was the gateway of the peoples, and now she's turned over to me. I shall be filled. She is laid waste. And so they have this, this attitude. David... Um, had good standings with Tyre. He traded with them. A lot of the materials that he got for Solomon to build the temple, because David couldn't, a lot of them came from the Phoenicians. And when we get to chapter 27, that will make more sense to you when we see the wealth of the city of Tyre and just how they traded in merchandise and just how much of a, of a beautiful city that Tyre was. But when Jerusalem fell, um, they looked at it as an opportunity. She's laid waste. Verse 3, therefore thus says the Lord God, because I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause, notice, many nations to come up against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. Now, in contrast to chapter 25, we're only dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 7, just so there's no doubt about it, it says Nebuchadnezzar. But in verse 3, it's not. Nebuchadnezzar is just one king, and he's the king in the nation of Babylon. But here in verse 3, it's plural. Many nations will come up against you as a sea causes the waves to come up. And they, notice plural, will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. Now, I'll repeat this several times. What this is a reference to is King Nebuchadnezzar coming and destroying the city. They, realizing that they were now vulnerable, move out to this island and they leave um, the ruins of ancient Tyre on the, on the coast of the Mediterranean. This is about a 1,000 uh, yards offshore. And uh, they rebuilt, they relocated. So there's a time when it's going to be destroyed again, but it's somewhere between 240 years to 300 years later 
when Alexander the Great's gonna show up. Now, um, let's read verse uh, five. It says, they'll scrape the dust from the top, like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea, and I have spoken, says the Lord God. It shall become plunder for the nations, plural. Also her daughter villages, which are in the fields, shall be slain by the sword, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am going to bring against Tyre from the north, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, he'll have horses and chariots, and with the horsemen, and with an army and many peoples, and he will slay the sword, your daughter's the villages in the field, that he will heap up a siege mount against you and build walls against you and, and raise a defense against you. Uh, he will direct his battering rams against your walls and with his axes he will break down your towers. And because of the abundance of his horses, their dust will cover you and your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagons and the chariots. When he enters your gates as a man enters a city that has been breached, with the hooves of his horses, and notice this next word, he, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, will trample all your streets, he will slay your people by the sword, and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. Now, let's just stop and pause. And I've been making this point as we teach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Um, one of the things that you, we need to get used to, and it, it shouldn't stagger us, that we go from a he to a they. And um, usually when I see something like that, I'll just put gap in there. And there is a gap where the they is now a reference, not to Nebuchadnezzar, he's the he, but the they is a reference to Alexander the Great. Now, uh, when we did this on a Sunday morning, I actually went to, to the book of Daniel, and we spent some time talking about the nations that have actually been world-ruling powers. And we're, they started with uh, Babylon, and um, we have Babylon here, but then we went to the Medo-Persians. And um, they're left out of this conversation conversation here, but they probably could have been part of the destruction of Tyre. But it wasn't until Alexander the Great came. So you have Babylon, Medo-Persian, now the Grecian, and that would have been Alexander the Great. That's what we have in view here in verse 12. And my point is, when we study God's word, that in prophecy, you can have in one sentence um, let me give you an example. Here's two verses, but let's just uh, let's just go back to Isaiah chapter um, 61, just for one example. This is very famous, but again, I want to show you that not only in a sentence, but even in a comma, there can be a period of two thousand years. So, if you're in Isaiah chapter 61, this is what Jesus quoted when he went to his hometown of Nazareth, he goes into the temple, or the synagogue, he purposely turns to Isaiah chapter 61, and he begins to read it, and he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, notice there's a comma, and the day of vengeance of our God, period, and, um, and to comfort all that mourn, end of verse two. Well, when you read the Lord's account, he doesn't say in the day of vengeance of our God, but he stops when he says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, he stops, closes, rolls up the scriptures, hands it back to the um, rabbi, and then he looked at the people, and he says today, right now, this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. 
But my point is he stopped at a comma. And between that comma and the day of vengeance of our God, that hasn't even happened yet. Now we're talking the great tribulation period. Uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 17 says that this period of time is known as the time of the wrath of the Lamb. And it is still yet future. So again, what we want to be sensitive to is that the Lord, in a comma, there could be a gap of time in this, in this case, 2,000 years. All right, let's go back to um, um, Ezekiel 28, or 26, I'm sorry. And we have, between verses 11 and 12, we have he, Nebuchadnezzar, and then they, will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls, destroy your pleasant houses. And then it says they will lay your stones and your timbers and your soil in the midst of the sea. And I will put an end to the sound of your songs and the, and the sounds of your harps shall be heard no more. I will make you like the top of a rock and you shall be a place of spreading of nets and you will never be rebuilt for I, the Lord, have spoken, says the Lord God. All right, here's what happened. Here's the first picture. After Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it, they moved to the island, but they left the ruins that Nebuchadnezzar left behind. Okay, next picture. When Alexander came, they built this causeway. It's wider now, but literally what Alexander did, he had all the time in the world and he had all these soldiers. He took all the um, timbers and the columns and when he ran out of that, he literally scraped the remains of the city, threw it in the sea and now you have this sort of like uh, isthmus or island going out that once was completely surrounded by water but it was captured and conquered and it was um, fulfilled exactly the way that um, Ezekiel uh, said it would take place. Thus says the Lord God to Tyre, will the coastline not shake at the sound of your fall? When the wounded cry, when daughter is made in the midst of you, then all the princes of the sea will come down from their throne, lay aside their robes and take off their embroidered garments and They will clothe themselves with trembling and they will sit on the ground and tremble every moment and they'll be astonished at you and they will take up a lamentation for you and say to you, how have you perished? One who inhabited by seafaring men. The Phoenicians uh, were colonizers. I mentioned uh, when we studied this that they went around uh, the, uh, the Rock of Gibraltar all the way to Spain, to Britain, and um, they were known as seafaring men. She and her inhabitants who caused their terror to be on all her inhabitants, and now the coastland uh, tremble on the day of your fall. Yes, the coastland by the sea are troubled at your departure. For thus says the Lord God, when I make you a desolate city, like cities that are not inhabited, when I bring the deep upon you and great waters cover you, then I will bring you down with those who descend into the pit to the people of old, and I will make you dwell in the lower parts of the earth in places desolate from antiquity, and those who go down to the pit so that you may never be inhabited, and I shall Establish you in the land of the living, and I will make you a terror, and you shall be no more. And though you are sought for, you will never be found again, says the Lord God. The city of Sidon um, is also going to be judged, uh, but Sidon is inhabited. And when we get to chapter 27, basically this, this would be the lament. And what it made me think of as I was reading this today is the judgment that the Lord is going to bring upon um, 
the industrial part of Mystery Babylon in the future. And uh, it has to be a port city. It has to be known for its luxury, for it being a port city invested in trade. So I'm basically going to let this speak for itself because it's a lament over this. um, I would liken this city today, and those of you who know what I think about Revelation and and, um, um, Babylon, I have strong convictions that it's actually the city of Dubai in the United Arab Emirate. And... um, I better not get sidetracked on that because <laughs> um, it, it came out of nowhere and it has, it has, okay, we're not going there. Chapter 27, the lament will speak for itself. What I want you to get out of chapter 27 as we study this is the opulence, the luxury. And when they say that they're weeping over this tremendous city, um, you'll get a better feel for the, um, the luxury of the city, ancient city of Tyre. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Now, son of man, take up a lament for Tyre. And say to Tyre, You are... Can't see there, with a shadow. Saturated, satiated at the entrance of the sea, merchants of the people on many coastlines... Thus says the Lord God, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the midst of the sea. So there's your island. Your builders have perfected your beauty. They made all your planks fir trees from Sinar. They took cedars from Lebanon to make you a mask. An oak from Bashan, they made your oars. The company of the Asherites have inlaid your planks with ivory from the coast of Cyprus. I think of a fine handmade guitar, and they have the embroidery with the ivory going around it, and some of it on the necks are embroidered in in ivory. Fine embroidered linen from Egypt was what you spread your sails, blue and purple, from the coast of Elisha, Elisha has covered you. The inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your oarsmen. Your own wise men, O Tyre, were in you. They became your pilots, elders of Gebel, and the wise men were in you to caulk your seams. All the ships of the sea and the oarsmen were in you to market your merchandise. Those from Persia, Lady, Libya were in your army as men of war. They hung shields and helmets in you. They gave splendor to you. Men of Arvad, with your army and with your walls all around, and the men of Gamad were in your towers. They hung their shields on your walls all around, and they made your beauty perfect. Tarshish was your merchant because of your many luxury goods. They gave you silver and iron and tin and lead for your goods. Javel, Tubal, and Meshach were your traders. Uh, They bartered human lives and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. So they actually were into slave trading and uh, selling people for merchandise. Those from the house of Torgama traded for your wares with horses and steeds and mules. And the men of Dedan were your traders. Many isles were the market of your hand. They brought you ivory tusk and ebony as payment. Syria was your merchants because of the abundance of goods you made. They gave you and your wares, emeralds and purple, embroidery, fine linen, corals, rubies, Judah and all the land of Israel were your traders. Now, this is where David comes in. And um, when we were in um, uh, Haiti uh, this uh, last couple weeks, um, the mission pastor from Calvary Chapel Burbank, his his study was, he did a pretty good job of an in-depth study 
of Solomon's temple. And in so doing, he, he um, calculated the amount of gold into today's standards, what it would actually be worth, and determined that it was the most expensive building ever made, and probably one of the most beautiful. And uh, that was David's job, collecting all of this. And one of his main trading places, of course, were the cedars of Lebanon. But also, obviously, Tyre is becoming a lot more than what we realize as we look at this chapter here. We go, oh my goodness. Look, look at all that they have and the opulence, the rubies. And then it says, Judah and the land of Israel were your traders. Well, I'm thinking of David. They traded for your merchandise, wheat, uh, millet, honey oil, balm. Damascus, which would have been, of course, Syria, was your merchant. Because of the abundance of goods you made, because of your many luxury items, with the wine of Helbun and, and with white wool, Dan and Javan paid for your wares, Traveling back and forth, they wrought iron and cane among your merchandise. Dedan was your merchant, and saddlecloth for riding. Arabia and all the princes of Kedar were your regular merchants. They traded with you in lambs and rams and goats. And the merchants of Sheba and Ramah were your merchants. They traded for your wares the choicest spices of all kinds of precious stones and gold. Uh, Haran, Cana, Eden, the merchants of Sheba, Assyria, and Chilmad were your merchants. These were your merchants in choice items, in purple clothes and embroidered garments, in chests of multicolored apparel, and strong twine cords which were in your marketplace. The ships of Tarshish were carriers of your merchandise. Uh, you were filled and very glorious in the midst of the sea. Your oarsmen brought you into many waters. But the east wind broke you in the midst of the sea. Your riches and your wares and your merchandise, your, your mariners and pilots, your cockers and merchandisers, all your men of war who are in you, and the entire company which is in your midst will fall into the midst of the sea on a day of your ruin, the common land will shake at the sound of the cry of your pilots. And all who handle the oar, the mariners, and all the pilots of the sea, they will come down from their ships and stand on the shore. And they will make their voice heard because of you. They will cry bitterly and cast dust on their heads. They will roll about in ashes and they will shave themselves completely bald because of you, gird themselves with sackcloth and weep for you with bitterness of heart and bitter wailing. And in their wailing for you, they will take up a lamentation and they will lament for you. What city is like Tyre, destroyed in the midst of the sea? When your waves went out by sea, you satisfied many people you enriched the kings of the earth with your many lux luxury goods and your merchandise. But when you were broken by the seas in the depths of the waters, your merchandise and the entire company will fall into your midst. All the inhabitants of the isles will be astonished at you. The kings will be greatly afraid and their countenance will be troubled. The merchants among the people will hiss at you. You will become a horror and be no more forever. All right, go back to chapter 25. Let me make a simple point. You have eight verses for the fall of Ammon. You have one, two, three, four verses for the destruction of Moab. You have one, two, three verses for the destruction of Edom, and one, two, three verses for Philistia. You have chapter 26 beginning to talk about Tyre and how Nebuchadnezzar took it, and then they move, and um, Alexander is the one who is the one who's going to come and destroy it, and then you have all of chapter 27. Now, when I read this today, it's been a long time since I thought, taught through Ezekiel chapter 27, 
I had forgotten about the opulence and the wealth of the city. Instead of having three or four verses, you have chapter 26 giving great detail. Um, and then 27, it gets in even greater detail just how opulent of a city this was. Well, that's fine, Dwight, studying ancient history. Well, let's bring it up to date and see what's around the corner. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 18. Chapter 18 is yet future. It is a city. The city is destroyed in one hour. And I'm going to take a little time because, again, one of our goals as we uh, teach through the Bible, you know, the Bible talks about laboring in the word. What What does that mean, laboring in the word? That means that you actually take the time and you read every word of Ezekiel chapter 27. And you go, what does that have to do with anything? Well, here's, here's the importance of studying the Old Testament, where some people today are saying, you know, you, you can teach the whole counsel of God just by using the New Testament. And that's the, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> that's crazy. There wasn't even, when, when Paul refers to the scriptures, there were no scriptures, there wasn't no New Testament, there was only the Old Testament. So you get to the book of Revelation, and let me just say that, again, most of Christianity today won't touch the book of Revelation with a 10-foot pole. They say it's too hard to understand, or it's allegorical, or it's a battle between light and darkness. The denomination that I grew up in does not take it literally. Main line Roman Catholicism does not take it literally. And why it's so important to teach all of the Bible? Because when you get to Revelation 11, we find that two witnesses show up and they have power for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. The two witnesses are gonna show up at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. God always leaves a witness on planet Earth. Right now, the church is the light of the world. You are salt and you are light. The church began with Pentecost. It's gonna end at the rapture. And I don't believe we're out of here for more than a couple days and these two guys are gonna show up. Why? Because God always leaves a witness. What do they do? Well, they can do whatever they wanna do. It says they're the two olive trees that were prophesied in the book of Zechariah. They have power to not cause it to rain for the full length of the time of their prophecy. And you go, say what? And I say, they'll have power to say it's not going to rain for the time of their ministry, which is how long? Three and a half years. And you go, that's crazy. Has that ever happened before? And the answer is absolutely yes. By the same guy. Elijah, the last thing the Old Testament says, I'm going to send you Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So that's the last thing the Old Testament says. They still haven't showed up because why? We're still here. There has to be a rapture. We had a study about that a couple weeks ago. Because the, the great tribulation is these two guys, which I believe for sure Elijah is one of them, and the other one I believe is Moses, could be Charlton Heston, but you know, I'm, I'm open to other possibilities. But this is the reason that we deal with stuff like this is you find this happening in the Old Testament. And you go, well, that's crazy. It's not going to rain for three and a half years. Yes, it happened before. Actually, by the same guy. And all of a sudden, my faith in the Bible takes on a whole new level of, of being serious about what's lying ahead. Now we're talking, we just read Ezekiel 27. It's a long chapter, Dwight. It looks like they were pretty wealthy, and it looks like they were um, pretty much wiped out, and everybody mourned about it. So when I read Revelation 18, I find the same thing is going to happen again to uh, what's going to be the most important city on the planet. Let's pick it up in verse 9 of chapter 18. It says, The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her, will weep and lament for her when they hear and uh, when they see the smoke of her burning. 
I need to back up just a little bit. Um, uh, we can go back to verse 7. It's talking about the city of Mystery Babylon being destroyed. Verse 7 says, In the manner that she glorified uh, herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I'm no widow, and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plague will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. And now the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Tyre, I could put that word there pretty easily, could I? No, Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come, and your merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, and no one buys their merchandise anymore. Now the rest of this reads like Ezekiel 27. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, incense, frankincense oil, and frankincense, wine and oil and flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, and chariots, and the bodies and souls of men. Doesn't, isn't, couldn't I just take this and plug it into Ezekiel 27? It's almost word for word. And the fruit of your soul longs for it. Now it's gone from you. And all these things which are rich and splendid have gone from you. And you will find them no more at all. And the merchants of these, these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment. Well, it sounds nuclear to me. That's the only thing that makes sense, but I'm speculating, and your speculation is just as good as mine. But they're weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great riches has come to nothing. And every shipmaker, interesting, and all who travel by ship, sailors and many as are traders of the sea, stood at a distance. And they cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? And they threw their dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Let's go back to Ezekiel 27. We have a result of the destruction of this in, in chapter uh, 27, and it's almost, you could put it here, almost identical. And uh, verse 32, in the wailing for you, will they, they will take up lament, saying, what city is like Babylon? Well, it starts Tyre. But again, my point is we have this chapter that is spot on, almost word for word, for something that is yet in our future. So that when I say we can take the book of Revelation not only seriously, but literally, there will be a city that will be just as opulent and um, uh, the world trade center, evidently, of the world. And I, I believe Dubai has that potential right now. And again, I almost went there, but almost. How am I doing for time? We can still do what I want to. When we can get to... Chapter 28. So we'll leave, leave that. And now we leave Tyre as far as a lament. And we go to the two figures. The prince of Tyre, the first ten verses. And then it's going to switch again. Notice a switch from um, prince to king. So the first ten verses is a man. And uh, the reason I know that is because it says so. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you say, I am a God, 
I sit in the seat of gods, in the midst of the seas. Yet you're a man, not a god. Though you set your heart as a heart of a god, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that can be hidden from you. With your wisdom and with your understanding, you have gained riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and trade, you have increased your riches. And your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Um, I'll just make a comment on this. The only thing it says about in the New Testament about wealth is to warn those who are wealthy that they don't set their heart on their wealth or their money. Um, The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. That does not make money evil. The love of the money is evil. This guy had set his whole life on his wealth. And, um, but in the New Testament says we're actually to warn those that might, uh, um, the Lord might have blessed them in many ways that they don't let that get in the way of putting the Lord first. The Lord actually said how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. That's a pretty heavy thing to say. Now there's a couple thoughts on what is the eye of a camel that he can get into heaven. Well, the caravans in the old days when they were entering a city and they would go through the gate, um, they would often call that the eye of the needle. And if your camel was really overpacked, it was very, very hard for that camel to get through the eye of a needle. The other thought is, um, to get a camel through the eye of a needle, you would have to put him in a meat grinder and grind him up really, really, really small. That's always a joke, guys. Come on. <laughs> but the idea there is that there's a lot of trappings that come with the pursuit of, um, of money. He says, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. All right, so that's that sidetrack right there. Um, Verse 6, therefore thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as the heart of a God. Behold, therefore, I will bring strangers, God bless you, against you, the most terrible of the nations, and they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the sea. So this is talking about the ruler of the city of Tyre. Will you still say before him who slays you, I am a god? But you shall be a man and not a god. In the hand of him who slays you, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hands of aliens. Happened to be Alexander the Great. For I have spoken, says the Lord God. These are the first ten verses. I'm only going to make it for um, uh, 28, but we'll hit uh, 29 on Sunday. In verse 11, again, when we teach through the word, um, it doesn't tell us, okay, we're going now from a man to Lucifer directly because they're One's called the Prince of Tyre, but in verse 11, it changes. And it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Now, on Sunday, I quoted um, Daniel, I mean, um, Revelation chapter 9, and these demon locusts that are released from the pit. And it says that these locusts in um, Revelation 9, had a king over them. And in the Greek, it was um, Abaddon, and in the Hebrew, Apollyon. I might have that turned around. And he is the king of the bottomless pit. And so here we have the king of Tyre. Dwight, what's your point? That there was a prince, but there was a power behind the prince, which was Lucifer himself, because he had these same characteristics. 
And we went then from there to Revelation and the last, the sixth bowl judgment before the Battle of Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon happens because three demons that evidently look like frogs come out near the Euphrates River. They go to the kings of the east and they persuade the kings of the east to come to this battle in Israel called the Valley of Armageddon. And if you want to get more info on that, just pick up the message from from Sunday because we went in quite a bit of detail on that. But my point is that behind, um, behind the Antichrist is going to be none other than Lucifer. All right, so this is who we have in view here, the king of Tyre. It says, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, the prince of Tyre was not in Eden with Adam and Eve, but this guy was. So now that's our first clue that we're talking about Lucifer. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald, gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes. So he's a created being covered with jewels but capable of making music is what's being implied here. Was prepared for you on the day you were created. And so here we talked a little bit about never confusing Jesus and Lucifer as counterparts. Jesus is a creator. Lucifer is created. Where does it say that? In verse 13, on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you, you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. My imagination just goes wild right here. I'm trying to figure out this creature that was perfect in beauty, and yet, the, you know, the, he succeeded in getting the, in the world to think that he is just the opposite. But um, as you know, I mentioned it on Sunday. There's a TV program called Lucifer that's on today. I watched about five minutes of one time to get get the gist of it. And he's cool, suave, sophisticated. At least that's what I got out of the character in a little bit that I saw it. But he, uh, he was perfect in his ways from the day that he was created, and then we have the word until iniquity was found in you. And then we have in the abundance of trading, you became filled with violence and you sinned. Well, here's what we read in Ezekiel 27, just how much they were. Tyre was involved as a world trading center. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. When Jesus sent out the disciples for their first missionary journey, oh, they came back, they were stoked. They said, oh, Lord, you wouldn't believe it. Um... We cast demons out of people. We had authority over the demons. And the Lord corrected them at that point. And he says, don't, don't get so excited about that, guys. Don't get excited that you have authority over demonic spirits. But rather, be glad that your name is written in the book of life. Now, this is a real good place for an amen. So, what's really, when it all comes down to, it's not who we are, what we do. But is your name put in the book of life? Are you saved? Have your sins been forgiven? Do you actually know what it means when it says, my sheep hear my voice, that still small voice, and you listen to it? And um, it's not knowing about the Lord, it's knowing the Lord in a personal way. These guys did. And so the Lord says, no, 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 don't get all bent out of shape because you have this authority. Your name is in the book of life. That means you're gonna live forever with me as my bride. And, And then he says, by the way, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. They wanted to talk about spiritual things. He says, that's nothing. I saw Lucifer when 
he was came cast to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You, def- you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the multitude of your trading. Therefore I brought fire from your midst that devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth. In the sight of all who, who saw you, all who knew you among the people are astonished at you, and you have become a horror, and you shall be no more forever. Now, the rest of this chapter is the judgment of Sidon. But before I go there, I just want to ask you about your friends and the people that you work with. And um, if you would ask them the question, do you believe there's a literal devil? What do you think their response would be? Just think it through. Do you think there's a devil? And um, some people will say, well, I, I believe there's evil and I believe there's good but I don't know if I believe if there's a devil. Well, if you take the Bible seriously, what do we have here? We have a real devil. Before his fall, his name was Lucifer. He's not called Lucifer anymore after the fall. He has all these other names. But here we have these verses along with Isaiah that talk about a created being that fell. And um, his fate... Uh, is also sealed and there's really nothing that he can do about that. If you go back to the map, guys, and back in the room, and you, if you put up the map of the conquest of Ammon and, and Moab and Edom, if we can get that one back up, and you see where Tyre is, if you go north of Tyre, you find the city of Sidon, and the way we're going to end our study tonight is we switch gears big time with these last ten verses or so. And it says the judgment of Sidon. Again, these are all um, conquered by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Then the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, set your face towards Sidon, prophesy against her. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon. I will be glorified in your midst, and they shall know that I am the Lord. When I execute judgment in her, and hallow are hallowed in her. I will send pestilence upon her and blood in her streets. The wounded will be judged in her midst by the sword against her on every side, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. They shall, there, and there shall no longer be a pricking uh, briar or a painful thorn for the, for the house of Israel from among all who are around them who despise them, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Thus says the Lord God, when I have gathered the house of Israel from the peoples among you whom they are scattered and hallowed them in the sight of the Gentiles, then they will dwell in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob, and they will dwell safely, and they will build their houses, and they will plant vineyards, and they will dwell securely when I execute judgment on all those around them who despise them, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Our study tonight deals with Jerusalem has fallen. Everything that Jeremiah and Ezekiel said has come to pass. We changed our subject from the fall of Jerusalem to the surrounding nations, that Nebuchadnezzar conquered. You can go to Sidon today, but you can't go to Tyre. Sidon has been um, rebuilt, but these nations um, around it were leading up to and what I was hoping we could get to, but we're not gonna be able to, but we'll touch on it on Sunday. The other nation that is left here that is gonna fall by the hands of Nebuchadnezzar is Egypt. And when we go to 2930, and 31, we have three chapters that are going to deal with just Egypt. And um, we'll deal with a section of that on this Sunday. All right, I'm right on time. Let's stand and we'll close. Lord, as we get through this 
series of judgments against the surrounding nations. We thank you for the detail. We thank you, Lord, that um, your word is spot on. Everything that you said would come to pass has come to pass. And Lord Jesus, what it does for us when we do look ahead to the future and we read these hard to understand statements in the book of Revelation because they're so identical to what has happened in the past, Lord, it gives us the faith to believe that you are indeed gonna fulfill every part of your word. So we thank you for our study in Ezekiel tonight and as we glean, Lord, some of the things from it. We simply ask humbly again that our faith, Lord, in you and in your word that is unshakable will create in our heart and mind a soundness and a steadiness that also cannot be shaken. As we sang earlier tonight, you're the one who started the good work in us and you're the one who's able to finish it. And for this we give thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.